Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. You look great, man. You hit on me, Cliff? No, no, I'm not hitting on you now. I've gotten married now. Um, those days are over. But uh, I will say that like, at the New York episode, season two, whatever that was, you weren't fat, fat yet, but you were still pretty big, and you just look so much better now. You know, just like thinner and trimmer and stuff. I was blossoming so, then. You were blossoming. Yeah, you're, you're ready for harvest, so not quite, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I was still surfing then. I was like, God, I must look so much like a seal. I must be so tempted to any great white swimming by right now. Yeah, well, you looked like a seal, but later on you looked like a walrus, and now you just look yeah. like an otter. You look like an otter now. Yeah, my dad fireball something goes, Jesus, buddy, you look like you should be floating on a slab of sea ice up in the Arctic or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, all big and red. Capillaries expanding in the surface of your skin. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, but you look great, man. You look great. Yeah, last time I was talking to you, you were going to go look for some tracks, but it was raining real hard or whatever happened with that day. Oh, yeah. So this past week, I get a uh, report, and I happen to open up my you know email at a certain time in the afternoon, and just 15 minutes prior, this guy emails me and said, yeah, my, my, uh, my sister works for the local parks, and there's a park called Oxbow Park. And, uh, it, which is, is not far from where I live at all. Like I live virtually on the Sandy river here in Oregon and then uh, Oxbow park is probably no more than seven miles downstream from me. You know, I live in a very squatchy location. Obviously I chose my, uh, my homestead, um, based on sighting reports like everybody else does. Um, but this spot, uh, has produced a lot of sighting reports over the years. Uh, what, in fact, one of the, um, remember, uh, that guy, Robbie, the, uh, the witness we talked to during our Oregon episode who saw one on that hairpin turn. Yeah, I remember that well. That's 300 yards from the spot. Like, that's Ooh. the same spot. Um, and so, anyway, so the, uh, Oxbow Park is on the other side of the Sandy River. It's on the west side of the Sandy River, whereas Robbie's report was on the east side. So uh, this, this woman who works for the park, um, she was there, I think, in the evening. But Wednesday, uh, she, had, she was in the park um, at dusk, and she heard a series of whoops. You know, whoop, whoop, sort of thing going off. And, you know, she's a not, maybe not a ranger, but someone who works out in the woods a lot. She kind of knows the animals. She's, I, she said, well, maybe it was an owl, but not an owl I've ever heard before. And then she was there the next morning as well, also at work. Um, and this is like gray light or just after dawn or something like that. And she heard the same thing. Um, and it was coming from not very far away from her. And, you know, Oxbow Park has a long history. You know, Robbie's sighting happened just a few hundred yards from there. 
Um, I was told that about 15 years ago, um, a family saw one a Sasquatch uh, wading about knee deep in the river right there, and they went and told the the rangers. And the rangers said, oh, where was it? And they said, oh, it's down here, you know, at the base of the cliff or whatever. And the ranger's reply was, yeah, yeah, that one's been down there for this past week or so off and on. People have been seeing it. So anyway, when I got this report, it's like, well, yeah, that's an area that's hot. I mean, things happen there fairly often, a lot more often than I hear about, that's for sure. Um, but since it was only 15 minutes before that I got the report, I just packed up my bag right then, got my waders and headed to the spot. Because uh, I don't live very far from there. It was an easy 15-minute drive for me. I parked the car. I waded across a small tributary. And then I was on this giant sandbank, you know, this uh, this giant sandbar, basically, on the east side of the river. There were a couple guys fishing. I saw somebody catch a small steelhead, like about a 14-incher. Um, but I basically walked that whole sandbar. So I figured, okay, if, if one is in Oxbow Park, maybe it was on the other side of the river. Maybe it was in the park. Who really knows? But um, it might have walked across that sandbar. And when you get hot tips like that, um, when you get stuff that's really fresh, you got to go look. You just got to go because I'll be you sure as hell aren't going to find a footprint sitting behind your computer. But if you go out to the field and look around, you have a better chance, obviously. So you just got to go. So I spent about an hour and a half, two hours out there, walked all over this giant sandbar, probably you know, three quarters of a mile, you know, upstream, another half mile downstream or something. You know, I put some distance under my, um, my waitered boots. Um, but I didn't find anything. Although I was astonished at the sheer number of elk and deer prints I found on the sandbars. Um, I, I expected to find deer. I expected to find bear. Actually, I didn't find bear either, but I, I did find a ton of deer and elk. And in the middle of this giant sandbar, this big a swamp basically, you know, full of cattails and the whole thing. Um, and this is right where Gordon Creek empties into the Sandy river. Uh, so it's just really wild terrain, long history of sightings. Yeah. And it, apparently a ton of food, but I didn't find any Bigfoot stuff. So that's why I don't even like to go look for prints. Now when people say, yeah, you'll find them and you go and you're like, where are they talking about exactly? Like you'll spend hours and hours. And then if you do get them to come back with you later, you're like, you know, you were kind of, Maybe close, but not close enough to find them, or they were just so obscure, they were impossible to find. I mean, it, I really don't like going to look for tracks unless the witness that found them is with me to show me where they found them. Yeah, but you know what? Um, think about, okay, on no, in November, well, I think it was November 26th, if I remember right, um, I got that call, or actually it wasn't even a call, I got the email that somebody had seen one the previous dusk, you know, down in Colton. So me and my buddy Dave went down there. Dave's from Malala. So I called him up because initially I was told it was a Malala. So I called Dave, but, uh, but it wasn't, it was Colton actually. And I went out there with Dave and walked around. We found prints at nine 30 or 10 at night. Um, and, and mind you, we were very, very lucky. We were walking off trail through this stuff, you know, like basically balls deep in the woods, you know, ferns everywhere. And so, and I stumbled across two footprints, phenomenally lucky, basically. Um, I cast them, et cetera, you know, but, but again, you gotta go I, to me, at least I gotta go footprints are my thing. And I know I'm not going to find them in my house, but you know, prints stay there for days. Bigfoots don't, but the footprint will stay there for a couple of days if the weather cooperates. So I'm all about getting out there and trying to see. And how often do you get the call? And it's right as a giant storm is blowing in. Like, like <laughs> I had that happen last year. It had been five months in between storms with a drought going the day I get the call. It rains like an inch and three quarters. Yeah, yeah, that that does happen a lot. You know, but then again, where we live, you know, Northern California and Oregon, 
um, that happens quite frequently, except for like three months a year or something. Right. You know, it always blows my mind is how good the PG trackway was when Bob Titmus cast it, what, 10 days later, nine days later? Yeah, yeah. It held together very well. Now, Roger and Bob, of course, covered a lot of the footprints with bark, um, but they didn't cover all of them, and certainly not all the ones that uh, Titmus cast, because I, I have copies of, I've got the left and right from Roger and Bob, and I have three of the Titmus, three out of 10 Titmus casts. At least, I think all of them show rain damage, like pockmarks from the raindrops on them. So uh, I don't know which ones Roger and Bob chose to cover, maybe just the ones that they cast themselves, um, because I know they went back later to deal with that sort of stuff. Or no, 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 I'm sorry. They cast them at the site. They took them away. Bob went back later in the night when it started raining to cover some other tracks. That's what it was. That's why we get Dan Perez on here. He'll straighten you out. Yeah. You know what? Dan is meticulous. You can say a lot about Dan, but uh, meticulous is one of the top three words I'd choose. Yeah, I just saw his presentation at the Nebraska conference. He, no one knows that film like he does. No, 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 nobody alive, at least. You know, every, there are people who know different aspects of it. So I guess, you know, Bill Munns, I bet, would compliment Daniel very well. You know, like, like not, not compliment him like, hey, you're a great guy. But like, you know, you have Dan Perez on one hand and Bill Munns sitting right in front of you. You're going to know everything you'd ever want to know and per- perhaps more than you want to know about the Patterson Gimlin film. Those two guys are just an encyclopedia of knowledge in that way. So Cliff, how's that museum coming along? Oh, right now it's a love-hate relationship. Now we're full-fledged into construction and and making the displays and you know doing plumbing and stuff like that. So uh, again, love-hate relationship, it's coming along, but it's coming along very slowly. Um, I'm optimistic, but um, it takes concentration sometimes. What have you got new, like uh, donations or things you've acquired? Oh, we've gotten some really amazing stuff so far. Stuff that I didn't even know existed, honestly. Um, I like I could give a shout out to uh, um, Dr. Robert Alley. He, uh, being the Bigfoot expert guy up on that coast, he has access to a lot of uh, native art and native witnesses and uh, friends in general. He lives up in Ketchikan. Um, so he has lent me some... Uh, Haida masks and some other, you know, other tribes up there as well. I have to go read them. I wouldn't want to say information that's incorrect, but, um, he's lent me three masks that are, uh, native depictions of Sasquatches, really replicas of, um, more historic masks. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Russ Jones, who you also know, um, another doctor, doctor, it turns out he's a chiropractor out in West Virginia. Super cool guy. Great big footer. Um, he has sent me, um, a framed poster the same poster that Roger Patterson used in his 1968 tour of the film. No, you got one. I mean, it's not mine. It's, it's Dr. Russ Jones's, of course, you know, I've never but I've uh, seen that in person. I had never seen it either. And now I've got one, you know, I can look at it right here. Of course, oh, it's the back, back of it. Right? Yeah. So, uh, it, it's, so people are stepping up and they're becoming enthused about the project and, um, you know, they're letting me deal with the ups and downs and whatever else, but, uh, everybody else is super stoked on it and uh, like a hundred percent and no downs for them. And, uh, they're lending me things. I mean, I don't own these things these things belong to the various people, but they're kind enough to let me display them and whatnot. And what, that's kind of how museums roll. 
a lot of stuff on display in museums, either cryptozoology mediums or, or Bigfoot museums or, you know, natural history museums or actually on loan. So we're going to be right. doing a lot of that too. You got a tentative opening date yet? No, no. And um, but even if I want to be optimistic and say something, all I can really say is this, we're, we're going to open incrementally because that's what makes the most economic sense. You know, I mean, you were on the show, Bob, so you know, I'm not rich, you know, I'm throwing everything I got at this thing. And uh, it would be nice to get the gift store open and uh, perhaps get some money coming back in to put in the museum as well. Well, hopefully I'm there for the grand opening. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people will be here for the grand opening whenever that is. But right. Yeah, that's the hard part, man. It's, it, you know, all I can say is, you know, the back door broke today. There's something else I got to fix. You know, that, that's, that, that's like the kind of stuff I'm worried about. So when people ask me, like, when's it going to be open for sure? So, well, I don't know. 2020 will be open for sure, but it'll probably open between now and then, hopefully sooner. <laughs> that's what I'm doing up here outside of Portland. I, the, the most effective researchers, in my opinion, live where they research or at least research where they live. Yeah, I agree with that. Unless you live in downtown LA or something. Right. In which case, usually, <laughs> then it's like a normal night Bigfooting where you don't come home with anything. <laughs> right. Think about some of your favorite Bigfoot locations, you know. Um, has there ever been a sighting there or something that reported before you stumbled upon it? Sometimes, but oftentimes not. Usually not. Yeah. Yeah, off the beaten path. The only place I've been where I've had a sighting that was known was Bluff Creek. Right. And it was known, be, and that's part of the reason you went there. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you think about Bluff Creek now? Bluff Creek's kind of like the natural Taj Mahal or Mecca for Bigfooting. You know, I mean, it's you have to go there. If you're a Bigfooter, you got to go check the spot. It's just, it's got a certain energy, and there's so much history there. And to actually walk where Patty walked and be where Roger and Bob were to look over that, you know, that creek bed, it's pretty special. It's awesome. And obviously, I love camping at Laos Camp, it's my favorite camp spot and all those mountains out there. It's got the nicest little swimming hole and you know, it's, there's tables and an old broken down bathroom, outhouse. And it's got a lot going for it. It stays nice and shady in the summer. It stays cooler in there than anywhere else. But I haven't had a ton of Bigfoot action over the last several years. I mean, the last, shoot, 10 years. Until you go to Bluff Creek, you don't realize how rugged and steep it really is. I believe it's amongst the steepest mile per mile in the entire country. It, yeah, it is. Like uh, if you were to flatten it out, the surface area, like square mileage, is uh, one of the highest in North America. Yeah, therefore all the landslides, et cetera. It, it, it astounds me how many footprints they got out of the Bluff Creek area in the you know late 50s to you know 60s. Uh, when nowadays you go there and how could they possibly do this? But what, what the difference is, is back then they hadn't graveled the roads yet. So right. most of the, most of the footprints were found on the roads cause it was muddy when it rained and everything else. But now that there's gravel over all the roads, the footprints don't show up as readily or as, at least as clearly, um, in a lot of the areas and across out, out, you know, off the road, you know, good luck. It's just a matter of luck. It's a matter of bad luck for the Bigfoot to step in a place where a clear footprint could be recorded. Right. Yeah. And there was uh, the rainy season was longer back then. You know, it started oh. earlier and went later. So you had more chances for wet earth. Oh, really? Global warming stuff? Yeah. A little climatic change. Yeah, probably for sure. Yeah. Def I mean, just since I've been up here, like the ocean temperature 
We used to go surfing. It'd be like in the high 40s a lot. You know, 48 to 51 was pretty normal. Like if it got 53, we were stoked. Nowadays, it's you know fluctuates like 53 to 57. Mm. You know, climate change is a much better term for that because global global warming implies that it's just getting warmer, whereas climate change it just means that hey, things aren't what they used to be. Yeah, for people to know there's climate change is pretty nuts. I mean. I can see where they're arguing about the cause of it. Some people say it's man-made, some say it isn't. It's uh, hard for me to see how we're not impacting it on some level. Yeah, I, I think it's undeniable that something's going on. And people can choose to take some responsibility for it or not. But why not just you know, try to make it better for everybody, no matter what the cause is? I mean, just where I'm at, I mean, we get these fake springs, you know, early springs, and then we'll get like another month after that of just pouring rain so all these things bloom and you know start flowering and then they get you know just washed out molded and ruined and the bees get screwed all these other you know insects and birds are all getting thrown off and i can see the impact of the climate changing just around here and it's i mean it's just obviously undeniable so which begs the question you know this is the bigfoot show how will that affect sasquatches you got to think about that. We're not the only things alive here, and it's irresponsible not to take other life forms into consideration. So, like, clearly they'd be, they would probably move north or at least into wetter zones if possible. I mean, the south would probably be fine until it dries up, right? I, I suppose their, their habitat, you know, the, the, the places they would want to be would become fewer and fewer because they do prefer things wet and dark and, you know, cold, basically. And with things warming up everywhere and desertification, you know, uh, forests and whatever else turning into desert, desertification, that's going to become an issue. I was also thinking, you, know, you always hear about the ones in the south, you know, in those swamps, like, you know, they're, they're known for their bad demeanor, how they're hostile and angry. And people always say down there, like, it's so hot and humid, they're just pissed off all the time. Like, we're going to get a <laughs> lot more pissed off squatches as the place heats up further north. Well, I, I hope it doesn't increase the anger. It might, that could be good for us, though. That's true. You might be able to get footage <laughs> faster, right? Look at the bright side. Well, all right, Bobes. I think we've covered enough ground this conversation. Uh, why don't we uh, pick this up a little bit later? Amen, brother. Good talking to you, Cliff. And thanks for listening, everyone. And keep it squatchy, friends. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 